So today we're talking about sex. <laughs> John mentioned it during the uh, John mentioned it during the uh, his intro to the song. He talked about different ways in which we're saved, and then like just dropped sex in there at the very end, which was fantastic because it actually is what I'm going to talk about. So, um, show of hands, who's been to a Christian youth camp? Okay, and this is related to sex. Um, and who? What are some of the rules um, about wardrobe? Uh, when you have attended those youth camps, what are some what are some rules that you had heard about what you can and cannot wear? Actually, mainly cannot wear um, at these youth camps. What were some of the regu- What were some of the rules? One piece swimsuits. What else? Hallelujah test. Can you? I have never heard of that. That is awesome. Is that a real thing? That is so great. Okay, so mo- no exposed. The test is no exposed midriffs. That's the idea. Okay, what any other? I love this. Any other? My midriff is ex- not exposed. Okay, any other examples of rules at Christian youth camps? Wardrobe. Cap- what was that? Oh, okay, like straps on the tank top. It has to be at least two fingers. Okay. There's got to be more. Yeah, your shorts have, can't be higher than your hand. Is that right? That's also the sim- similar one. Any other ones? Any ones for guys? They all seem to be for girls, right? Yeah. Were there any? <laughs> That's another topic, huh? Any other, any other for guys? Guys, I guess, can pretty much do anything in, the, in these, these situations. What was that? Nothing profane on the T-shirts. Yeah, usually there's something about that. And guys would usually be the most uh, guilty of that. So it is interesting, like, the, the, differ- the differences between sexes. Um, but in the end, all of these different rules, they are in one way or another about sex. And it wasn't explicitly stated, I, at least in the youth camps that I attended, it wasn't explicitly stated that this was about sex. But in the end, that's ultimately what it concerned. And last week, I talked about how we can pretty much eat whatever we want and that in the Christian life, there aren't really rules about food. I mean, the Jews had all kinds of regulations around food, but the idea of being a Christian is you no longer have to live by those rules. And so if there aren't rules about what you can eat, how come we have rules about who you can sleep with? I mean, aren't they both physical and aren't they both needs? And yet we have a whole bunch of things that govern there's all kinds of Christian rules around sex. And so what I wanted to talk about today is, what is how do we make sense of that? Because as I've talked with many of you, your experience of the church um, is such a, especially in the, in the area of sex, is only about rules. And as I've talked with certain, with some married couples or people that are married, there are, it's really, there's been some challenge, there's some challenges where all throughout your Christian upbringing, you've been told to not have sex, don't even imagine it, um, and all these different rules governing it, and hallelujah tests, and all these different things. Um, and then when you get married, you know, you can have sex with your, your wife or your husband, but to switch off that wiring where sex is evil, and to turn it into something good, and God did create sex, and it is something good, it's really difficult to change that wiring. And so what we're going to kind of examine is, you know, on one hand, the world says you're saved 
by having sex, but it also seems like the church says you're saved by not having it. And so how do we kind of negotiate and figure out what is the, what does the Bible say really about this topic? And we're going to look at that in chapter three of Colossians. And chapter three of Colossians isn't just about sex. It's about a bunch of different things, but we're, I'm using, I'm talking about the, I'm using the topic of sex as one way to examine what it means to live out this new, excuse me, this new life we have in Christ. So I'm going to read from Colossians 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. So if you have Bibles, you can turn with me. Colossians 3, 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's our reading today, and there's a lot going on um, in Colossians 3, 1 through 11. In fact, it you could even use this as kind of a capstone because in this transition, you know, up till now, the first two chapters of Colossians is all about theology. It's all about what God has accomplished in our behalf in Christ and about who Jesus is. And then beginning in chapter three, very similar to the book of Colossians, it transitions and it begins to talk about how we behave because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so that behavior is the, you could call like the outside, but it's informed by what's happened to us on the inside. And that's the way the Christian life always works. It starts with what happens on the inside, and it makes its way outward. So I'm going to use a term, manifest, okay? To manifest something is to show something that's happening on the inside on the outside, okay? And what Christ has accomplished for us is what, when we live out the, a Christ-centered life, we are manifesting what Jesus has done on our behalf. You're showing it. You're bringing it to the surface, okay? And so that's what I mean when I say the word manifest, and I'm going to be coming back to it. Um, this, these first three verses of Colossians, of Colossians 3, uh, set your mind on things that are above, is often quoted. It's quoted frequently. And the issue I have with quoting it is that it ignores verse 1. Because verse 1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ. You only seek the things that are above based on the if. And the if is you've been raised with Christ. So it, it's interesting. We say, we think of it 
we often think of set, seeing, um, setting our mind on things above as we're looking upward. But what this verse says is you don't actually have to look upward because you have been raised with Christ. Okay, your li- and then later in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ. So your, the fundamental nature and essence of who you are is now with Jesus. So you don't have to look above. You just have to look around you because Jesus is in you and around you. Does that make sense? We always think of it as looking higher, but you don't actually have to look higher because J- Jesus has changed who you are. And I think what's so difficult for us to kind of uh, get our minds around that is we don't actually believe Christ has substantively changed us. And I'm, I hope that I just repeat that over and over throughout the life of this church and throughout my life as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, that we don't fully understand that we have our essential nature has been shifted, has, is now totally different. And like, because I think what's intuitive to us is this idea of gradual change, or frankly, no change at all. What's most intuitive often for us in the Christian life is kind of like the, uh, the, the weightlifting or fitness metaphor, is you work on your body, it changes over time as you, you know, tear those muscle fibers and they repair themselves, and then that's how you transform. But the thing that Paul has been repeating throughout this letter and that is so easy to ignore is that God's transformation of us is actually instant. It happens the moment that we place faith in him, that we die and are raised up with him. In fact, this is what is being discussed. You, you know, you, you, you definitely heard that part about putting to death um, sexual immorality and some other things that we'll get into. But the thing that I want you to focus on is that it first starts with being raised with Christ that we have died and your life is hidden with him. And that is the fundamental reality. That is a fundamental reality of your existence. And the most significant thing about you, that is what has happened inside of you. And that is an unalterable fact of our existence is when you place faith in Jesus Christ, it changes who you are. You are different. And so what I want to examine now is what then does it mean to have this life in Christ? Okay. What does that, what does that mean? And he's been talking about it throughout this, the first chapter of Colossians. And if you look in verse 19 of of chapter one, it says in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so what does life look like? What does an earthly life look like as opposed to a heavenly life being with Christ? Well, what Paul says in verse 21, it says you were alienated and hostile. And so what I want to propose is that a life of death, or the meaning of death, is disintegration. Okay, disintegration. And when I say disintegration, I don't mean like to make something disappear. When I say disintegration, I mean separated. I mean fragmented. Okay, and this fragmentation is, what that results in is this alienation and hostility. And that the way most of us experience life is that it is disintegrated and fragmented. And so earlier when Michael was sharing about the challenges of COVID, what he experienced was a disintegration 
of his life, of his professional life and his personal life because things were coming apart through COVID. The, the things that he valued, in-person hospitality, serving coffee, all those different aspects became fragmented, became alienated from each other. And so when we think about we're, we're keenly aware of disintegration in this world because there's hatred, there's polarization, there's discontent, and you can even just go into the news and see examples of disintegration, of discontent, of, uh, of fracture, of pain, and of death. And so the way I want you to think about it is we were intended to be this perfect reflective surface. And this reflective surface reflects back the glory of God and how we are created in his, in his image. But what this alienation and hostility of sin has done, this self-centeredness that we have been born with, what it means is that we are these uh, reflective surfaces that have been broken and fragmented and scattered into different pieces. And what we are doing with our lives is trying to put back this mirror together. We're trying to put this mirror back together. And what it reflects back is like this distorted image of ourselves and of others and of God. So that when you're looking at yourself in that, like, like, like a hall of mirrors of a, with a broken mirror, like one eye is super big, your torso is super long, it's this distorted image and it's fragmented and it doesn't come together and it doesn't make sense. But this is a life without Christ. This is what having death, being in death looks like. And so when it continues on in Colossians 2, verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what what, what it means to have life in Christ, to, to die and to be raised again with him, is that God has put together this fragmented reflective service. He's put it all together so that it perfectly, again, reflects ourselves accurately. It reflects Jesus accurately, and it reflects one another accurately. Okay. That is the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, and that is the beauty of what it means to have this life in Christ. And so then, as it continues in verse 5, I'm, I'm trying hard not to be distracted. I can do it. <laughs> um, it says in verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And it talks about sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And it's talking about putting those to death then means you disintegrate the things that lead to disintegration. <laughs> okay? And why is it that those things lead to disintegration. Well, number one, notice that it says put to death. Okay, when it says put to death, what that means is it's not a half measure. To put to death is not the language of compromise. To put to death means end. It means final. It means done. It means finished. And then why do we put earthly things to death? Because if everything is Christ, and it later says Christ is in all through all, then isn't everything good? <laughs> well, it's not the substance itself that makes it good or bad, or evil. It's the outcome, or the fruit, or the behavior that determines whether it's earthly. And so when we look at this list, it says sexual immorality, okay? One of those on the list is put to death sexual immorality. And notice it doesn't say put to death sex. And that's often the interpretation that we get um, within the church, but that's not what it says. It says put sexual immorality to death. Because sex is good, and sex in the right context 
is it means integration. Okay, the fulfillment of sex, and I've I've talked about with some of you in, in, in marital counseling, the fulfillment of sex is a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And when you have integration in all those different respects, the physical and sexual that that integration along with the emotional and the economic and then uh, the volitional, which is the act of the will, all those come together in the sexual union that happens between a husband and a wife. That's what makes sex meaningful because it's integrated. And what makes sexual immorality meaningless is its disintegration. It's fragmented. It's separated. But the, whole, the act of sex itself was meant for integration, was meant for meaning and purpose and connection and relationship. And so what Paul is saying here is that what the things that disintegrate you, that fragment you, that put you into pieces, those are the things that you put to death. You disintegrate the things that lead to death. That's what makes something earthly, is when it fragments you and alienates you and makes you hostile. And Fred the Gator sent me an article um, about sex and how um, in our culture, people view sex as saving you, and, but at, and at the same time, they try to dispel and get rid of any kind of guilt and shame that goes with it. And yet the problem with, with that is, as you make sex, sex something that can save you in itself, it leaves people empty. And there's a lack of fulfillment and a lack of meaning and purpose that happens within it. Ooh, feel that awkwardness. I love it. Okay, so <laughs> I want to talk about pornography, <laughs> which is the type of sexual immorality. And porn is ubiquitous today, and it is a, it is a temptation for me. And it has been a lengthy struggle in my life. And porn viewing does not lead to an integrated life. And maybe that's not something I need to explain, but I think it's important to recognize because of how ubiquitous it is, because it is a cheap imitation of something that is real. And that's true for any kind of sexual immorality because it promises meaning and purpose. It promises sexual immorality has this promise of integration, but it doesn't offer that. It doesn't actually give you, it, it offers that, but it doesn't actually give you that. And so all the things that we're really after, this connection with God and with others, is absent, especially when it comes to pornography, because it is like a kind of junk food. Now, last week I talked about uh, eating and nutrition. And viewing porn is like eating junk food. It feels good for this brief moment, and then you feel empty. And it leaves you wanting more, and also triggers feelings of guilt and shame. And it becomes this cycle, and it, and it ultimately does not lead to deeper intimacy or stronger relationships. And so if it's something you struggle with, know that you are not alone and that God loves you and has set you free and that you have been raised with Christ and are not now able to see above and to see differently and that there is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Rather, there is freedom and there is hope and there is meaning and there is purpose. And there are many other areas of sexual immorality. And I'm only just choosing this one because it's the first one that occurs and it's something I just haven't talked about. And there is always pleasure in any of those pursuits. It's always kind of inherent to sin is that it's pleasurable. But also evident in them is this hunger for meaning and purpose and connection. And I hope that's something that you recognize that even if these sins are things that you struggle with, there is something even good 
in the struggle with them because you are seeking integration even in the act of sin. And so what I would encourage you is not to hide in your guilt and shame because those a lot of those things tend to have us in secrecy, but to find people whom you can confess to and to talk to and to share with. There are other compulsive and reactive desires. In fact, that's how I label them that are listed here in verse 5. Impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And all of those, again, lead to a kind of disintegration, a kind of fragmentation where you are alienated and hostile and against other people. So the physical does matter because there is an ordering and there's an integration. And last one, I'll just give an example of, of covetousness. It can probably be parsed into an assortment of different things, but you scroll, just think about as, I, as you scroll through a social media feed, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, you see things or people doing things that you want to do. This like a, fa a family vacationing in Hawaii. Look at how much they're having fun. Look how, how together they are. And then you feel these a sense of uh, contempt or regret or anger that our family doesn't have this much fun, that we shouldn't have canceled our Hawaii trip, that we should be doing those same kind of things. Those are reactive and compulsive desires that resemble disintegration. And God is saying that's what you put to death. And let me give one more example of what it means to put something to death or to experience death. I'm not the biggest fan of superhero movies, especially the Marvel ones. So that's a, that's a confession. No groans. Okay, good. I think there's too many superheroes running around to keep track of, and, uh, and I'm just not crazy about them. But one genre that has been more recent is the, the subverting the superhero genre, like kind of playing with it and turning it upside down. Uh, so movies like Hellboy and Deadpool and more recently The Boys is a TV show. I can't recommend it to everyone. It's not, not super kid-friendly. Um, but there was a movie last year called The Old Guard um, char starring Charlize Theron. And every superhero has a backstory that explains how they received their superpower. And in The Old Guard, the way that you received your superpower is you die. You die and then you are resurrected and when you're resurrected, you can no longer die again. Or at least there's this kind of a limited immortality, which I know sounds like not immortality, but just, just know that you can be killed many, many times in the old guard. And you're pretty much the exact same person, but you can recover from any kind of injury. And so that's pretty much the premise of the movie. And it's not, I don't think it's, it's a little bit spoiling, but forgive me. But not only does it change your life in that one significant respect, it also ends all these earthly relationships that you have because all your friends and family see that you've died and you can no longer relate with them in the same way. And then not only so, but you join this community of other immortals as part of this, like this kind of superhero clan. In fact, they all have this sense of when that, that occurs. And so not, you end this existing set of relationships and begin a new set of relationships. And that's the way to think about death and life in the, in the Christian faith. That through the death of Jesus, through joining with the death of Jesus, you now end your relationship with people that, the way that you had it before and with substances and with activities the way you had it before. And you begin this new life in Christ with the people of God where you relate with them differently than you did before. And that is the essence of what it means to live out this life of Christ 
is to experience death. And if you think about it, every superhero, I just want to go through this a little bit. Every superhero has this kind of conversion experience, even the ones that don't have superpowers. So like Batman, for instance, in this Christopher Nolan series, his backstory is that he has these two death experiences, one with the death of his parents, where his existing relationships end, and the other where he, he falls down a well. You know, it's, I'm preaching, so there's got to be a well. He falls down a well, and he gets stuck in the well, and that's his death experience, and he confronts his fear of bats. And so in those, both those moments, he confronts a fear and his existing relationships end and he has to be resurrected and he begins anew and he's kind of figuring out what that looks like. And that's what it means to, to die and to live in the Christian life where the way that you relate to earthly things ends and it's over and the way that you relate afterwards changes. And so what does that new relationship look like? Okay, and he explains in the rest of this passage. So let me read the rest of it. Let me read the rest of it again. So in Colossians 5, after he talks about the immorality, the sexual immorality and putting that to death, it says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So there are consequences, spiritual consequences to living by um, compulsive desires. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. This is what you die to, to anger, to wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what then does it have to do? What then does this mean from a positive way in thinking about sex? Well, if sex is then meant for integration, is meant for being with, together with, with people, then seek after the things that bring integration, the things that bring togetherness, right? And that's what Jesus is, that's what Paul is talking about through here. But he goes on, he says, put away the wrath and the anger and the malice because those things come out of you. So there are certain things that come out of us that lead to disintegration. And he's saying, put that, put that away and die to that because now we have a fullness of life coming from Christ. And then it says, and this is easy to disconnect from the rest of the passage. It says to not lie to one another. And it relates, you know, sexual immorality and anger and wrath and malice all together. But the essence of not lying to one another is seeking the truth of what it means to be integrated, to be, what it means to be put back together and ordered under Jesus. So a lot of times when we talk about telling the truth, what we mean is telling the truth about ourselves, telling the truth about something that's happening inside of us, telling the truth about, let's say, how, if we're angry or we feel wrathful. But that's not actually the truth. <laughs> That's not actually what it means to tell the truth. In the context of, what, of this passage, what it means to tell the truth is to talk about how we are now connected to Christ, how Christ has brought everything and all of us together and reconciled us to the cross. That's what it means to tell the truth to one another. And those things that we think are real, the anger, the wrath, the malice, those are disintegration. Those are the lies. The truth is what Christ has accomplished. And so let me share one last illustration of what that means. Micah has been working on his Eagle Scout project, and it's a mural at Healing Grove. And some of you have been there to help with that, and I appreciate that. And this, uh, this mural that he's put together um, it has sunshine, and it's got grass, and it's got kids playing. And I think there's some other things I'm probably forgetting, uh, but you don't have to correct me yet because I'm, 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 I'm going somewhere. And then yesterday as I was helping, I, um, I, I erased a boy, okay? I, I covered up and, and erased a boy, okay? Because Micah has this artistic vision 
and the boy was not in the right place. And how, do we, how did he know the boy was not in the right place? Well, there's a centerpiece in this mural. Because every, every artistic vision has a centerpiece. It has a theme that brings everything together. And the centerpiece in this mural is a tree. It's a tree of life whose leaves bring healing to the nations. It's from Revelation 22:2, which is the meaning, the meaning of healing grove. And this tree is what makes sense of everything in the mural. It brings everything together because it provides shade as a canopy. The leaves are falling everywhere. We, we spend a lot of time making all the leaves, um, multicolored uh, um, aspects of the leaves. And the problem is that this boy was like flying in midair <laughs> and he needed to be grounded near the tree. <laughs> Right? He needs to be grounded because, again, it's all about the tree. And when something isn't in the right place, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. And so we're going to redraw. The, the boy's going to be redrawn today, Micah. Is that right? The boy's going to be redrawn today, and he's going to be grounded near the tree. <laughs> because the tree makes sense of everything in the picture. And so how does this relate? How does this connect? Jesus is the one who makes sense of everything. He brings everything together. He is the one who brings shelter. He is the one who, who draws everyone together and brings sustenance and life and healing. And when we seek after the things that bring us closer to the tree, <laughs> that's ultimately what our lives are about. And that's what God has accomplished in his son. And that's what it means to speak life to one another, is to bring each other, encourage one another to come closer to the tree, to have integration with him and die to the things that disintegrate us. And that's my prayer for us today. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the beauty of creation, for the birds that we hear that form this beautiful picture, an image of what it means to be connected to you. Thank you for these trees that we send under that provide shade for us, that are evidences of life and nourishment. And thank you for the tree of life that is you, Jesus, who, have brought, who has brought all creation and all of us and reconciled us to yourself. So in the midst of disintegration, of fragmentation and hostility and anger and wrath and malice and unforgiveness, you through your son have rescued us and reconciled us back to yourself so that we can be fully whole. And so Lord, would we pursue that kind of integration that you have accomplished in our behalf, where we manifest it in our lives, including the way that we relate to one another and how we think about and view sex. God, we trust you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.